desperate examples in the Bible of a person who has been set free from the shackles of sin is the Apostle Paul. And uh, we're going to be looking at his uh, conversion in Acts chapter 26. And I'm going to back up, read uh, uh, three verses from last week's uh, sermon, beginning at verse 9. Hear the word of God. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. While thus occupied... As I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people, as well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that you may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and it is our desire to worship you and to respond rightly as uh, we uh, uh, hear the various sections of this passage. It is our desire that we would grow and be sanctified and uh, that uh, this word would transform us. May we not hear it in word only, but may it be in word as well as in power. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our only Savior. Amen. Amen. may be seated. I'm going to start with a, a story from a sociologist that I really don't consider to be an orthodox evangelical. In fact, he drives me crazy sometimes. And it's about a a group of people that does not have a very savory reputation. And uh, his method of evangelism is uh, a tad bit strange. But uh, his unorthodox methods of evangelism are a whole lot better than perfect methods of evangelism that are never engaged in, right? Uh, The author is Tony Campolo, and the story that he told is about a group of prostitutes that he met in a cafe... And it was actually accidental uh, from a human perspective that he met them there. There's nothing accidental in life in terms of divine appointments. But uh, he had gone to Honolulu uh, to uh, do a Christian conference there. And because of jet lag, he just could not sleep. And he finally got up and went out to see if he could find something to eat. And he found this uh, little coffee shop and went in. And there was this huge guy behind the counter that... Uh, asked him rather gruffly, what do you want? And uh, he said, well, I'd like some coffee and I'll take a donut. And uh, just about the time that he sits down at his table, in walk uh, eight uh, uh, very provocatively dressed uh, prostitutes talking rather um, loudly and aggressively. 
in a very small cafe, so they're all around him. And he's thinking, I just need to get out of here uh, because they're talking a little bit crudely. But they said something in their conversation that made him decide to stay and uh, uh, it touched his heart. One of the girls announced that it was her, her birthday tomorrow, that she was going to be 39 years old. And another prostitute made fun of her and said, so what do you want from me? Birthday party? What do you want? You want me to give you a cake and sing a happy birthday to you? And she got defensive and said, come on, why do you have to be so mean? I'm just telling you, that's all. Why do you have to put me down? I'm just telling you it's my birthday. I don't want anything from you. I mean, why should I have a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why should I have one now? And Tony says that when he heard her say that, <clears throat> he realized her emptiness and he decided he was going to throw a party. And um, uh, he didn't tell any of the girls. When they left, he went up to the guy and he said, do these girls come here every uh, morning? And he said, yep, every morning at the same time. And he said, now that one girl that was talking about her, her birthday, what's her name? And he said, uh, her name's uh, Agnes. Yeah, she comes in here every night. Why do you want to know? And he said, well, because I heard her say that tomorrow was her birthday. What do you say we do something special for her? What do you think about throwing a birthday party for her right here in the diner? And Harry responded enthusiastically. He said, that's a great idea. I like it. That's great. Agnes is one of those people who's really nice and kind. I don't think anybody has ever done anything nice and kind for her. So the next morning at 2.30, Tony shows up and he's got streamers and decorations uh, that were there. And Harry insisted he was going to do the, the cake. And the word must have gotten out because by 3.15 in the morning, it was wall-to-wall -wall prostitutes in that uh, <laughs> cafe. And there was only Tony and, and uh, Harry that were the men that were there. And he's kind of the moderator of this whole thing. So at 3.30, when Agnes shows up at the door, everybody jumps up and screams, Happy birthday, Agnes! And she's just stunned. She doesn't even know what to do. She's standing in the doorway. And when she sees Harry bringing the cake with the birthday candles all flaming, she just starts sobbing and sobbing. And uh, everybody's kind of embarrassed, you know, for her. And um, Harry's kind of gruff with her. And he says, Come on. Blow out the candles, Agnes. And he hands her a, a knife to cut the cake. And she just keeps staring at the cake and finally asks if it's okay if they don't eat it right away. And Harry says, well, sure, Agnes, that's fine. Keep the cake. Take it home if you want. Oh, could I, she asked. I live just a couple of doors down the street. I'll be back. Honest. And everybody who's expecting to eat some of this cake... They're flabbergasted, speechless, as she carries this cake out the door like it's a holy grail. And um, obviously very, very touched by what people have done, but not very socially uh, sensitive. Anyway, Tony's not quite sure what to do either. So he says, what do you say we pray together? And in his book he says, looking back on it now, it seems more than a little strange that a sociologist from eastern Pennsylvania would be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But I prayed. I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed and that God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry leaned over and with a trace of hostility in his voice, he said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. <laughs> and he wasn't actually. He says, What kind of a preacher are you anyway? What church do you belong to? 
And he says, in one of those moments when just the right words came, I answered him quietly. I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. (laughs) Uh, Harry thought a moment and then almost sneered as he answered, No, you don't. There is no church like that. (laughs) In fact, he concluded, if there was, I'd join it. And when I read that, I thought, I'm not sure that we would be a church that would throw birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. And I asked myself, why not? Why would that be the case? Is it because we're afraid? Is it because we don't have the contacts? I mean, that may be the case, or we're too too, uh, busy. And if we wouldn't throw prostitutes, uh, excuse me, if we wouldn't throw birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning, would we reach out to them? You know, Jesus did. Jesus had more than one former prostitute that was a part of uh, his circle of people that, uh, that he talked with and, 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 and ministered to. <clears throat> Would the accusation that the Pharisees threw against Jesus, that he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners, be an accusation that anybody could throw against us? I think with some of us it would, you know, and uh, I think we would welcome prostitutes if they came into this church. Let me tell you something. Prostitutes don't usually come to churches. You've got to go out to them. Uh, they're, they're not people who are going to frequent these doors. Now, here's a question. If we wouldn't reach out to prostitutes, would we reach out to a Saul of Tarsus? He's on the other end of the spectrum. He is a, a hyper-legalistic uh, sort of a, a fellow, a persecutor, Would we reach out to him? We saw earlier in the book of Acts that the church really didn't want to talk to Paul. Even after he got converted, they didn't want to talk to Paul. It took Barnabas reaching out and drawing him in. I think that people were scared of Paul. And I think we tend to be scared of anything that is quite different than where we're at. Right? We tend to be really nervous about that. I think it takes the grace of God to break us out of our comfort zones. Now, if uh, Scott invited, uh, you know, a half dozen bikers and leathers into this uh, congregation, would they feel welcome in our midst? Now, I think we would try to welcome them and reach, reach out to such people. But then I asked myself, who are we reaching out to? You know, we have done some door-to-door evangelism in our neighborhood, and we've kind of broken the ice with people by saying we've got a prayer meeting in our area, and we're wanting to find out any prayer requests that are in our neighborhood, and uh, we'll pray for you. And people have been very open. I've just been shocked and surprised. There was a Buddhist lady who said, oh, yeah, I just lost my dog. Could you pray? We prayed with her right then and there, and she found her dog. And, and then she had a messed up daughter, and we've uh, prayed for people who have had uh, cancer. And uh, there's all kinds of different prayer requests we've gotten from the neighborhood, and God's answered some of those prayer requests. So we need to be going back and continue those relationships. But I thought, what would our church look like if everybody in our church witnessed to their neighbors and their friends and their associates and uh, prayed for them and cared for other people? Would we be in a position where we as a church would be able to minister if we had a huge influx of people with messed up lives? 
I hope the answer is yes, but I think we need to be casting ourselves on the Lord and asking Him not only for divine contacts, but for divine attitudes and divine words, you know, that are appropriately spoken in due season. And what we basically need to be doing is having an expectation that God delights in reaching out to such people and having God put such a longing within us that we desire to reach out to such people ourselves. I want to be used by the Lord to love people with messed up lives. Now, last week we looked at verses 1 through 11 and we saw that religion is not enough. Okay, religion can pray, it can evangelize. Every Pharisee was engaged in evangelism. Uh, religion can do all kinds of things, but it is empty. And so we're not talking here about doing more things. Okay, some of you are so busy you wonder how you could fit one more thing into your life. Uh, you know, some of you don't ever work downtown, so you're never going to run into a prostitute, and that's okay. But what we're talking about, the things we do, the people we meet, the circles that we are around, do we live our lives by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit? Do we have the kind of deadness of Christianity that verses 1 through 11 looked at? Or do we have the real life and vitality that Paul was ushered into by the Holy Spirit? Today I want to see the nature of real Christianity from Paul's perspective. Christianity can be real and powerful and transformational. Now in verses 9 through 11, we see that real Christianity reaches sinners even if they are self-righteous. I think we need to remember self-righteousness is just another sin, just like any other sin. So we shouldn't be looking down our noses at self-righteous people any more than we would look down our noses at people on the other end of the spectrum. They all need Christ. And I want you to look at the kind of person that was reached by the gospel in verses 9 through 11. Let me read that again. Indeed, I myself thought I must do. Notice his sincerity in his sin. He said, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul was a great sinner who was reached by the gospel of grace. He says here that he was a blasphemer. A blasphemer. Are there people that you know that blaspheme and cuss and are a little bit uncomfortable to be around? I'm sure you know people like that. What we need to realize is that the gospel of Jesus Christ reaches such people. Uh, real Christianity uh, reaches people that were hostile to Jesus, just like Paul was. We know people who are hostile to everything that Jesus stands for, and yet we can have a confidence that God's grace can reach them. Can we reach out and preach to Democrats and Republicans, to uh, Libertarians and Green Party? Can we, can we reach out and have a kind of an attitude where people realize we're not just writing them off, we care about their souls. Paul was a murderer. Julie can tell you that criminals need to hear the message of the gospel in jail. Can the gospel reach people who have murdered their unborn babies? And we have to say, yes, it reached a murderer like Paul, and it must reach out to such people as well. One of the things that was so refreshing to Kathy and me when we went down to the Worldview Super Conference was meeting so many transformed lives. It was really cool to see some of these people. We talked to a guy that had been converted out of communistic atheism in Bulgaria, 
and had become such a passionate post-millennial reconstructionism and he wants to turn Bulgaria upside down with the gospel, he's just got such an enthusiasm in his evangelism. He's been blogging all over the place and his, his blogs in Bulgaria are widely read and I thought, wow, what an incredible transformation by the gospel. And then there was Gary DeMar who was a drunk who was converted. Somebody had gone into a bar and had witnessed to him, just sat down and started witnessing to Gary, and he got converted. And Gary now is the head of American Vision, an organization that's having incredible impact upon America, trying to turn this country upside down. And I wondered, what, what about the guy who walked into that bar? I should have asked Gary. I wonder if he even knows that uh, Gary DeMar, you know, the guy who's had such an impact in America, was a guy that he had led to Christ. And then there was Joel McDermott, a guy covered with tattoos and former rock and roll um, band member who is now the director of research for American Vision, hardcore into his theology. His life turned upside down. And then I start thinking, you know what? Our, our congregation has some of the same kind of people. When you look at Living Stones, which is our church plant for those who don't know uh, about it, and you look at this congregation, there's a lot of you that come from some pretty tough backgrounds. And yet God's grace was powerful to turn you upside down. What did he do? He used ordinary people to reach you. And the point we're going to be looking at today is you are the kind of ordinary people God wants to reach out in the same way and keep that cycle going, to reach out to people and see their lives turned upside down. Verse 12 shows that real Christianity is not about man seeking God, but about God seeking man. Ordinarily, you're not going to have people wandering into a church, uh, whether it's a Saul, a prostitute, anybody else. Usually, it's other people in the church going out to reach such people with the gospel. And um, I want you to notice here that Paul was not seeking God. It says, while thus occupied as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests... It was while he was occupied in resisting God that God stopped him in his tracks and converted him and saved him. Okay? Uh, don't feel like uh, uh, you can't do it. It's God who is the one who converts people. It is sovereign grace. If that's not a testimony of sovereign grace, I don't know what is, but all grace is sovereign grace. And it's not man seeking God, it's God seeking man. In fact, this is one of the things that distinguishes Christianity from every other religion in the world. And you know that realization can free us up to realize, hey, I don't need to sweat it. Uh, even if I blow it, God can use the things that I am saying to reach out to other people. It's God who changes their hearts anyway. And so don't feel guilty when you blow it and you're, you're witnessing. Uh, that, that's not a failure. The only failure is failing to witness. Blowing it when you witness, that's a great testimony that you're seeking to serve the Lord and He uses us in our weakness. I've told you about the young retarded gentleman in a large Southern Baptist church in Atlanta who really, really wanted to witness for Christ and was very intimidated, but he said, you know, at least I can hand out tracts. And every one of us can hand out tracts. And if you want to do some kamikaze evangelism with me and uh, learn how to hand out tracts downtown, let's do it. Uh, but we can at least hand out tracts, and that's what he was doing. And finally, he was getting a little bit more bold, and he, he gave a tract to this one uh, gentleman who was a businessman and said, Sir, do you, do you want to go to heaven? And the guy curtly said, No. 
And he said, okay, well, go to hell then. <laughs> and uh, we would say, that's not the best method of evangelism. But let me tell you something, that method of evangelism is better than no method of evangelism, right? It's better than not reaching out at all. And in this case, God actually used it to convert this man because all day long that phrase went through his head. Well, go to hell then. Well, go to hell then. And he realized he was headed toward hell. So he pulled out of his pocket that tract which he had not thrown away. He got soundly converted. He looked on the back to see the address. He went to the church that was listed there. And at some point later on, he gave his testimony of how this young man had impacted uh, his life. Uh, to me, real Christianity is about God seeking man, not us seeking God, which means any one of us can be used by God to do this. It doesn't matter how clumsy our efforts. The point is, are we trying? Are we reaching out? Are we willing to be conduits of God's grace working through us? You know, when it's God's timing for a friend or a relative or a neighbor to get saved, there is nothing that will stop them from getting saved because salvation is 100% of God. It's 100% of grace. Saul contributed nothing. And of course, that leads to verse 13. Real Christianity is supernatural. At midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. That supernatural miracle that happened in Paul's life stayed with him the rest of his life, profoundly impacted him. But you know, when Paul wrote his epistle of the first Corinthians, he, um, he, he said, really, every regeneration that God does in a human heart is a similar miracle of grace. Let me read first Corinthians, two, uh, excuse me, second Corinthians four, verse six, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Christianity starts with a supernatural act of God's sovereign grace that resurrects a dead spiritual corpse, gives them life for the first time, enables them to see their sin as they ought to see it. For the first time, enables them to see God who, as He really is. But God wants us the rest of our lives to be living within the realm of the supernatural. He doesn't want us to just have faith. He wants us to go from faith to faith, which implies you keep growing in faith. He wants us to grow from glory to glory, from power to power. And, and uh, this is one of the things I would encourage each one of us to never stop growing from grace to grace. Now, of course, that does not mean that Christianity makes God into a super-duper vending machine that's at our disposal 24 hours a day. That's the way some people treat God. Uh, when they deal with the miraculous, they're thinking, okay, God's here for my comfort. God's here to be my servant. And that's completely the inverse of the way it really is. What's the first thing that happens to Paul when he comes face to face with Jesus? Look at verse 14. It says, when we all had fallen to the ground. That's what God's grace did to him. When we all had fallen to the ground, real Christianity is overwhelmed with the awesomeness of God. It's a reverence for God. And any Christianity that treats God lightly has not experienced the fullness of real Christianity. It's a Christianity that has not met God in His awesome power. I like the depiction of the fear-inspiring Aslan in the movie The Lion, the Witch, and the, the Wardrobe. Now, whatever you think of C.S. Lewis and the, the movie, I think this is really a powerful scene. Aslan inspires fear 
and reverence in everyone who saw him. Just made their knees tremble. Hosea 11 verse 10 says of Yahweh, He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. That didn't deny that they're children. Didn't deny that they're secure and justified and safe in him. But those children still come trembling from the west. And here's the question that I have for you. Do you tremble? Do you tremble before the Almighty? Amos 3 verse 8 says, The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The sovereign Yahweh has spoken. Real religion is not a feel-good religion. It is a God-centered religion that demands unconditional surrender. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Susan said, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, says Mrs. Beaver. If there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. But then the balance that Mrs. Beaver brings to Lucy when she asks, is he safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Jesus isn't safe to anyone who was outside of him like Paul was. He is not safe. He has made a hell of judgment for those who reject him. He is not safe to those who are in Christ and yet are living in rebellion against him because he is a father who disciplines uh, his children. But he does so with safety, love, joy, and security. Everything that we need uh, when we come before him, we bow our knees before him. And I love the way that Hebrews 12, 28 through 29, almost dovetails those two concepts uh, together. That God is safe, but he, he is not safe, but he is good. It says, let us have grace. There is his goodness. Let us have grace by which we may serve God. You see, when God is so good, we've tasted that He is good, our hearts are attracted to Him. We want to serve Him. We want to lay down our lives for Him. So he says, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. So He's like a mighty lion. You don't cross Him. But he also attracts our hearts, and he attracts them so thoroughly. We want to serve him and do anything we can. And if you've never trembled and fallen before God like the Apostle Paul did here, there's still a dimension of God you have not yet experienced. Now, you might have loved ones that you wish would come to Christ, and you've been very, very frustrated because they're not interested at all. And I would say, don't worry about it. Paul wasn't interested either. Uh, He was uh, going the opposite direction. And you might think, yeah, but uh, these guys that I'm trying to witness to, they are downright hostile to everything that I say. Well, so was Paul. He was the great persecutor. And they might say, but it's been so long. I've been praying for these guys for years. Well, God chose not to convert Saul right off the bat either. And uh, God knows our language. He's got perfect timing. Look at verse 14 again. It says, I heard a voice speaking to me. And saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, Jesus knows everything about your loved ones. He knows their name, their language, their heartaches, their wants, their despairs. He knows their language so well, he knows just what to do to invincibly bring them to a sound conversion. In one of Billy Graham's prayer letters in 1989, uh, he related the testimony of uh, a young banker in Uganda and... uh, this guy's wife was uh, the first one in that family to come to Christ. 
Uh, but when she became a Christian, he was outraged. He was so angry. He did everything he could to get her to stop being a Christian. But when he saw her faith growing day after day, what happened is it alienated him from her rather than drawing the two together and it frustrated her. Uh, she prayed and prayed for his salvation and she tried to be the best wife that she, uh, that she could be. But... Uh, 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 he just became more sullen and bitter and hostile. And as he became more depressed, he became suicidal. And his bitterness made him want to take it out on his wife. Uh, he finally made up his mind to kill his wife, to kill his children, and then to kill himself because he felt he wouldn't have anything to live for after that. But he wanted to have an excuse for why he could legitimately kill uh, her which is an odd thing, but let me tell you something. When you stew and wallow in the cesspool of bitterness, you become irrational. I've seen people do such stupid things to alienate their family, such stupid things to harm themselves because of their bitterness. But anyway, uh, that's what he was thinking. Uh, I've got to have some good reason to, uh, to kill my family. So he was going to make up a story about them that that uh, she had stolen his bank keys. Um, anyway, early one afternoon, he left the bank and headed for a tavern, and his route took him across a footbridge that uh, went across the, the headwaters of the Nile River, and as he was in the middle of that river, he dropped the keys into the water, and then the rest of the afternoon, he just partied and caroused and, and drank. Now, back to the wife. Later that afternoon, his wife went to the fish market to buy a evening meal, and she purchased a large Nile perch. Now, I've had Nile perch out in Africa. It's delicious, wonderful fish. But she was gutting this fish, and she felt something hard in the stomach, and she just, out of curiosity, opened it up and was surprised to find her husband's keys with a keychain on it, keys to the house and the, the car and to the bank. She had no idea why the keys were in there, but she washed them off. She hung them up on the, the hook that was in the bedroom. And when the drunk young banker came home, he pounded on the door and demanded, where are my keys, woman? And already in bed, she got up, picked them off the hook, handed them to her husband. And when the story came out, he fell to his knees just sobbing and asking for forgiveness. And he became converted. Now, I give that story to say God knows our language. He knows just what your vulnerabilities are, what your weak points are. He knows how to weld all of these things providentially together so that you freely come to Christ and yet He has orchestrated it all by His grace. And I think you can rejoice in that. You can take courage in that and keep witnessing. Don't give up on your loved ones. Keep witnessing. In verse 14, Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, this is turning everything away from a horizontal level to a vertical level. It's sort of like with that banker, the story that I, I told you. For the first time in his life, he realized that his actions weren't just against his wife. These were all sins against the Almighty. And now that's exactly what Paul is experiencing. He's realizing he wasn't just persecuting Christians. He was persecuting Jesus Himself. It became a totally Godward experience. Now, this is at the heart of what makes the difference between what Martin, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls psychological conversions and spiritual conversions. There is a world of difference between the two, even though many times they look like that they are the same. 
many people get converted to Christianity for psychological reasons. In other words, it helps to deal with their guilt perhaps. Or perhaps they're just comfortable with uh, Christianity. Or perhaps it's to get friends, uh, have a better community, uh, get finances, whatever the thing may be. They're all horizontal reasons for becoming Christians. It's a psychological conversion. In complete contrast, the spiritual conversion is where you are suddenly struck by the realization that you live and move and have your being in God and He could send you to hell at any moment and that you have been sinning against Him. He opens your heart and this Godward direction makes you so you don't care what your associates uh, want you to do. You suddenly bow before the Almighty and realize all of this is rebellion against God. We owe our all to Him. Anything else is rebellion. True conversion is God-centered. And frequently it is painful in the extreme. Jesus told Paul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now the word for goads, it's like a little stick with a sharp point on it that you jab the cows with. And then the cows, woo! They, they start moving forward. That's what a goad is. And he's saying God was putting goads into Paul's life. Now, those goads were the conscience that was working upon him. Now, most commentators will tell you that the goads were the testimonies of Christians that he had seen from the past, and most of them focus especially on Acts chapter 7, when Paul looked at Stephen, whom he had martyred. He looked at Stephen and he saw Stephen saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Uh, he saw the forgiveness uh, 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 as opposed to the, the wrath that was being poured out on him. They saw the contrast between the love of Stephen and the hatred that he had. He saw the face shining like a face of an angel. He could not get that out of his memory and it bothered him. But here it says goads, plural. It's not just one goad, okay? Stephen was one pokey stick that was poking into his conscience. But there were probably many other people, men, women, and children, through their actions, their words, their attitudes, that had been a goad in his side that God was using to drive him to the Lord Jesus Christ. Outwardly, you would look at Paul and you'd say, well, he didn't have any goads. He doesn't have any problems. He's persecuting Christians. He's so aggressive. He's so confident. But it was all hiding. That outward shell was hiding the enormous pain that was driving him uh, to the Lord God. James Hewitt uh, tells the story of a lady in England that uh, he knew personally who had just that uh, day had somebody walk up to her on the street. She said, boy, this was really strange. The guy walked up to her and uh, said, excuse me, ma'am, but I want to thank you. She didn't know who he was. She said, thank me? And he said, yes, am I used to be a ticket collector, and whenever you went by, you always gave me a cheerful smile and a good morning. I knew that smile must come from inside somewhere. Then one morning, I saw a little Bible in your hand. So I bought one too, and I found Jesus. <laughs> now, she would probably never have known that her real Christianity that was manifested just in this cheerfulness and this desire to bless other people, that this had an impact upon this other person. If he hadn't told her, she would never have realized. But God uses real Christians to bring others to a faith in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> it's sheep who reproduce sheep. People say, oh, just leave that to the pastor to evangelize. No, it's sheep who reproduce sheep. I was just reading in our family devotions last night 
from Philippians chapter 1, where the, remember earlier in the book of Acts that the, the uh, Jews were so afraid because of the persecution that came both from Rome and from the Jews that they were beginning to clam up and not say anything. But it says here, let me see if I can find the uh, verse, verse 14, and most of the brethren in the Lord having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He didn't say most of the elders. He said most of the brethren are speaking the word without fear. And we just need to realize God has called all of us into this grand, wonderful venture. I really like the Gideons. They're constantly placing God's word everywhere. And one of the fun Gideon stories I've heard about is how this very passage led a person to Christ. The guy's name was Jacob Koshi. He was born and raised in Singapore. His whole passion in life was to get rich. That's all he cared about. Led him into drugs, into gambling. Eventually he became the lord of a huge smuggling network. But he was caught in 1980. He was thrown into a rehabilitation prison in Singapore. And he was in a mess. Their punishments were pretty severe. And his whole empire lay in shatters. And God was using this to get him so that he was prepared to listen. So very, very discouraged. All his hopes and dreams and aspirations had fallen to the ground. And so he's sitting, just stewing, and he's addicted to tobacco. But they don't allow cigarettes in the, in the uh, place there. But he managed to get somebody to smuggle some loose tobacco in, and because the Gideons had placed Bibles there, he was tearing pages out of the Bible, rolling his cigarettes and smoking those. And one day he fell asleep, and while he was asleep, uh, the cigarette went out, and he woke up, and it was kind of unraveled. He opened it up, and the words from our passage here were written there. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And God's sword of the words struck through to his heart at that point, and he had this craving to read the Word. He got another Gideon Bible, and he just voraciously read it, read it, was soundly converted, and is now a missionary in the Far East. And he once said this, Who would have believed that I could find the truth by smoking the Word of God? <laughs> uh, the point is, you never know what goads that God could use in your loved ones to drive them to Christ. Okay, That's what the goads are. Keep moving, Paul. Keep moving. He's poking, poking, and eventually you get to the place where, boom, God converts them. You've got to be one of those goads in their lives through your loving actions, through your words, through inviting people over for dinner, praying for them. All of these things can be goads in their lives. And at just the right moment, God brought, God brought Saul to unconditional surrender. Verse 15, So I said, Who are you, Lord? Already, he's not quite sure he's talking to, but he knows he's his Lord and his Master. He's completely surrendered to him. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. What's the implication? The implication is, stop persecuting me. Stop being hostile. Stop living for yourself. Stop running away. Surrender. And perhaps you have been running away from the Lord Jesus Christ and from a real Christianity this morning. And Christ's words to you are that religion are not enough. Do not put your trust in religion. Cast away the religiosity of verses 1 through 11 that we looked at last week. And I urge you to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Real Christianity is all about unconditional surrender. 
The problem for Paul was if he surrenders, his former friends are going to go cold and they're going to eventually persecute him. He knew the routine. He'd seen it many times. He knew he would be in trouble, but he also knows I can't have one foot in this kingdom and one foot in another kingdom. It's choosing his former life or choosing Jesus and a whole new life. See, real Christianity is raising the white flag and saying, I surrender all. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. May I ever love and trust Him in His presence daily live. All to Jesus I surrender. Humbly at His feet I bow. Worldly pleasures all forsaken. Take me, Jesus. Take me now. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. Can you say that this morning? If you can honestly say that this morning, you have got the sovereign grace of Almighty God and work in you just as surely as it was at work in the Apostle Paul. And it's interesting that God doesn't actually give Paul a chance to even respond. He already makes the choices for Paul. God's chosen Paul before Paul chose him. And here again, you can see the same thing in verse 16. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. What encouraging words. When he's confronted with the Almighty, he realizes he is in deep trouble. God could have just trashed his life and thrown him into hell, but he doesn't. He restores him to ministry. He restores him to a calling. God killed Paul's old life, restored him, to a new life. And so point number six in your outlines says real Christianity restores us to our true calling of service to God. Now, while service is fulfilling, it is service, not fulfillment, where our focus should be at. If you think Christianity is all about fun and fulfillment and our satisfaction, then this call that he gave to Paul is a rather strange way of communicating that. In fact, he adds in chapter 9, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, I'm not saying that Christianity is not fulfilling. It's immensely fulfilling. We looked at that last week, but that is a side benefit of our being servants of the Most High. It is a side benefit of relentlessly pursuing our upward calling. And at the heart of that calling is service to Jesus and whatever he wants. And this is so different from the kind of soft Christianity that so many churches peddle. Uh, Isaac's, Isaac Watts' hymn, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? What it's trying to do is it's trying to paint that the same difference that exists between a military and an ordinary citizen is the difference between a real Christianity and the Christ, that which is fake. It is, it is a, there is a world of difference, and it's all about this this consecration. And one of the verses was emblazoned all across the, the huge stage of the worship center at Prairie Bible Institute where I went to school. It says, Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? See, true restoration is restoration from self-preoccupation to service. True Christianity is passionate about God's calling. And a major part of that calling is penetrating Satan's kingdom of darkness while trusting God for the results. By the way, there's a wonderful Old Testament picture of this, and that's the taking of the land of Canaan. Hebrews 4 says that the advancement of the Great Commission 
was pictured by the taking of the land of Canaan by the sword. Now, you look at Numbers chapter 32, and <clears throat> Moses says, okay, you're all going to go into the land of Canaan. You're going to take the conquest and be soldiers, be valiant for God. And there's two tribes, tribe of uh, Gad and Reuben, that say, hey, can we have the land on the west side of the Jordan River? And Moses gets outraged at them and says, there is no option but for everybody to be fighting in this battle. And they say, oh, no, no, we're not saying we're not going to fight. We just want to settle our wives here, and even they're going to be involved in prayer. We're going to go out into the conquest. But the point of Numbers chapter 32 is that every Israelite is involved in the Great Commission. And that's exactly the same in the New Testament. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. If you're a follower of Christ, you must be a fisher of men. Okay? The passage I read in Philippians 1, it's all the brethren who have become bold to speak the word to those who are out there. Acts chapter 8, uh, it says, all the Christians except for the apostles were scattered abroad. So it's not the apostles witnessing because it says those who were scattered abroad went everywhere speaking the word. Speaking the gospel, actually, is what it says. Gospeling the gospel is the way some people... Uh, gossiping the gospel is the way some people translate that. And so it's an every Christian responsibility to penetrate Satan's kingdom. Now I want you to look at the warfare imagery in verse 17. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. The main reason we fear witnessing is man. Oh, what are they going to think of me? What are they going to do to me? Am I going to get persecution? What's going to happen? But God can deliver you just as surely as He delivers the Apostle Paul. Basically, He's telling Paul, okay, you're going to have all kinds of opposition from the Jews and the Gentiles. Don't even worry about it. That's my job to deliver you until it's time for you to go home to heaven. Don't even worry about that. Your focus is you need to preach. Your focus is you need to reach out. And the remainder of Paul's calling in verse 18 is a summary of the heart of real Christianity. It says to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. I gave an exposition of that last week because we jumped ahead. I didn't want to just leave you with a depressing, empty religion. I wanted to give you what was going to be at the end. So I'm not going to give an exposition of that right now. But if you'll let me, I, what I want to do right now is close in prayer and I want to make every phrase of verse 18 our prayer to the Almighty that God would transform us and make this a reality in our congregation. So let's pray. Lord God, we commit ourselves unreservedly to You.